you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How does a small town girl become an associate dean in a college of engineering? And how necessary is a PhD to having an important position in a university? And finally, what is Thinkbox and why should we care about it? Join us as we consider the idea space within universities on today's podcast. And when I stepped on that college campus, I was blown away. My life was changed because up until that time, information was very limited. There was no internet and I had two TV stations. I'm a little older than I look. And I just didn't know what the world meant and didn't travel. I don't know if I'd ever been outside of Ohio until that time. Well, I'm still not outside of Ohio at that time, but I had never traveled outside of Ohio. And so when I got on this campus, I was around professors and I was around libraries and I was around books. And and my mind was just blown in terms of what was out there and the people that I was meeting. And it was at that time where I'm like, I, I love learning. You know, this kind of the passion for learning was ignited. This is the podcast where we talk innovation. On today's podcast, we're speaking with an innovative associate dean who thinks regularly about the free exchange of ideas within the university. Which reminds me of a great quote by Alfred Griswold in his Essays on Education. He said, Books won't stay banned. They won't burn. Ideas won't go to jail. In the long run of history, the censor and the inquisitor have always lost. The only sure weapon against bad ideas is better ideas. The source of better ideas is wisdom, and the surest path to wisdom is a liberal education. I had the great honor to go to college as well as graduate school, and I'm quite certain bad ideas can only be banished by better ideas. This concept was born in the heart of a university. Alfred Griswold was the 16th president of Yale University and had quite a bit to say about the concept in higher education that we call academic freedom. The concept of academic freedom and I became great friends while I was in graduate school, and I believe with all my heart that there should always be a respected place in our society where all ideas are accepted in with open arms, shaken around until they get dizzy, and then the ones that can stand up on their own get to stay until better ideas come along. Here in America and the West, the university has always been that place. Many new ideas are being run through the testing grounds of universities these days, including makerspaces, the hottest technologies, and every other imaginable idea. Here at Tabletop Inventing, we're particularly excited about inventing, making, and using a full-body experience to discover deeper learning. However, this week, we want to give a shout-out to all those amazing professors and educators who have helped shape who we are and what we do. If you're curious about what we do, visit InventingZone.com to find out more. Our guest today is Lisa Camp. Lisa is the Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives in the Engineering School at Case Western Reserve University. I have a soft spot for Case because it's my alma mater for graduate school, 
and Lisa shares some of the cool things that are happening at Case and other universities around the country, particularly around makerspaces and the free exchange of ideas. Without further delay, let's find out more about Lisa. So my guest today is Lisa Camp from Case Western Reserve University. Uh, Lisa started out as a small-town girl in Senecaville, Ohio, and has recently become the Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives in Engineering at Case Western Reserve University. Now, that's a pretty big uh, journey, and she's also written a book, The End of Academic Freedom. So, Lisa, tell us a little more about this journey. Sure. So um, yeah, I started out in a small town, as you mentioned, and my parents were very keen on encouraging education. Neither one of them went to college, and they said that this one thing you will do is you will go to school. And so I did, and my first step on college campus was at Baldwin-Wallace College. It's now called Baldwin-Wallace University in Berea, Ohio, which is a little small town outside of uh, a suburb outside of Cleveland. And when I stepped on that college campus, I was blown away. My life was changed because up until that time, information was very limited. There was no internet and I had two TV stations. I'm a little older than I look. And I just didn't know what the world meant and didn't travel. I don't know if I'd ever been outside of Ohio until that time. Well, I'm still not outside of Ohio at that time, but I had never traveled outside of Ohio. And so when I got on this campus, I was around professors and I was around libraries and I was around books. And and my mind was just blown in terms of what was out there and the people that I was meeting. And it was at that time where I'm like, I, I love learning. You know, this kind of the passion for learning was ignited. I started as a communications major and I dabbled a little bit in the sciences. And then I thought maybe math might be it. And I actually ended up in English as an English literature major because it was really hard for me to sit and read and decipher novels and intent and character development. All those things were very foreign and it was something that really challenged me. So I stayed in English. But throughout my four years at Baldwin Wallace, I was lucky enough to come across some incredible administrators there who um, really pushed me in terms of, you know, I, I would sit there and babble about how much I loved higher ed and how much I loved learning. Them, and they kept pushing the why. Why do you like it? What is it about this environment that you think is a great thing? During one of the conversations I had, I was having it with a, 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 it was an associate dean, or not an associate dean, an academic dean. He had a colleague with him during this conversation who happened to work at an organization in Washington, D.C. that was called the Association of College and University Offices. And that organization, of which Baldwin Wallace was a member, was a group that helped faculty take ideas and really think about how you might support them from a federal perspective as well as from you know other kind of funding perspectives. And so I was talking with my mentor at the time and this fellow from Washington about why in you know higher ed's so important and you know how you know all these great ideas happen here and I you know how you know there's so much research that can be happening and new thoughts that develop. And they pushed me. They said, do you know how those ideas get supported and how those ideas come to light and what that actually means? And I said, I have no idea. I, people sit around and think and they sit in their, their research labs and do really cool things. And they said, well, there's actually a whole infrastructure around higher education. Why don't you come learn about it? And so through good luck and fortune, I was offered a position in a organization down in Washington where we worked with colleges and universities across the country with faculty to sit down with them and say, what big ideas do you have? What new knowledge do you want to create? What new changes do you want to make in the higher education realm? And we would learn about that, and then we would try to connect them into funding opportunities at the federal and the private levels. So that's where I first learned about how ideas come to light from a kind of a formal perspective um, in terms of how do you fund 
fun things. You know, it was my first aha moment that research costs money. Faculty members who sit in labs, they have to pay for the equipment somehow. Um, they have to pay for people's time to do the work. And people who are writing books actually need to buy their time to write books and to do the research in the background. So this whole other side of academe started to open up to me in terms of how do ideas come to light. I always say that that experience in Washington was an incredible one because it was a small company, but around that table, were former deans, former presidents that worked there. And our lunchtime discussions, no one would go out to lunch. We'd all go to the conference room and we would talk about current events. We would talk about Socrates. We would talk about these incredible minds. And they were teaching me, you know, teaching me how to continue the discourse outside of a classroom. And also teaching me how universities worked and how universities function and why it's so important to treasure the life of the mind and to build and support institutions that can treasure the life of the mind. From there, uh, my journey continued back to Ohio, actually. I took a position at Cleveland State University and worked in the research offices of Cleveland State, where I got to work again with faculty on taking ideas and trying to help them massage those ideas for external funding and external pursuits. I was at Cleveland State for a while. I had my first child and you know the balance that starts to come with somebody who is working and trying to have a family we all try to figure that out so I was fortunate enough where I went to my boss at Cleveland State after my first child was born and said every bit of my parental plans have fallen apart I'm gonna have to quit I need to, I don't know what to do with my kid. <laughs> and he said, why don't you start consulting for us, Lisa? You know enough about how Washington works. You have enough value to bring to the faculty. Let's figure out how to make you um, still part of our world, but do it through a consultative mode. So from that point, I developed a company called Camp and Associates. Um, I worked for with some mentors to develop what this company could look like. And I ended up really providing advice and support to faculty who are going after federal grants, very specifically, how to write the idea, how to share the idea. And at that time, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, this concept of doing more beyond the individual faculty member but into like partners. You know, what do you do in terms of translating your research? How do you work with the local school district to make sure your educational methodologies that you're researching gets into the classroom? And so I started to do a lot, not only with just grant writing, but also in terms of how do we kind of bring these different types of people together, the academics with the corporate folks, with the school folks to talk about, you know, what does it really mean to take your ideas and translate them into a different environment? and how to work with partners. So I did that for about seven to eight years. Then Cleveland State came back to me and said, hey, we want you to come back full time. You are very skilled at listening to what our faculty members are interested in. You seem to understand really what we're about and how to support them. We want you to come back and work on some bigger projects for us. So I was recruited to come back to Cleveland State and I worked in the research office and then quickly moved up to the president's office. I don't know if it was a move up. I mean, for those of you who know higher education, sometimes that's a move down when you have to go into a, a higher office in a university because you get further away from the faculty, which are the driving force in so many ways at, the, at a university. But in those positions, like I learned more about how do you bring in politics internally as well as externally to bring ideas to light. And I really had that moment of kind of actually a little bit of dismay where I'm like, you know what, there are some ideas that are incredible that can't get through the political ruckus to come to light. You know, they don't have the right players in their court or they don't have the right people in the room or they don't know how to take it to the right external people. So I continue to do a lot of work on big faculty projects with big partnerships to help manage the political tensions and to manage the, you know, how do you actually bring support, not just financially, but from a, I guess, not emotional, but institutional support for ideas. How do you bring the right things to light? And during that time, I 
did a lot of work for, with everybody from historians to engineers. I became very interested in what was going on in the engineering world, um, particularly up here in Cleveland. Um, there were growing clusters of strength in the areas of electronics and sensors and controls, and I got very engaged in learning how that worked and was very excited to learn how that worked. Um, I think that one of the key features of all my career up to that point and actually continuing is that I got to be around faculty learning new things all the time. And so that was my first intro into kind of like the engineering side of the world and loved it and came across and uh, met faculty members from Case Western Reserve at that time um, and the former dean of Case Western's engineering school at that time as well. And he said, hey, Lisa, why don't you come over and work at Case a little bit? You know, he goes, there's some interesting things that you might be able to do on these kind of bigger scale projects to help, you know, kind of bring folks together and kind of infiltrate this this crazy federal government and how it's, it's changing so much. And, you know, it's going away from funding individual faculty to more group projects. You know, we, I'm like, no, 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 I'm having way too much fun at Cleveland State. We're doing some great projects that's very community focused, very engaging with the faculty. And at that time, I also started to work with the president of Cleveland State and another faculty member on the book that we wrote, um, Men of Academic Freedom, because as I had experienced throughout my career, and you know, as we talked about Michael and Bill and I, there's a big concern over making sure that these institutions really value the ideas and support the ideas that are coming out of them, because there's there are no other institutions in this country where you have at the foundation idea development, knowledge generation for the sake of idea development and knowledge generation, because you never know where it's going to go, right? You never know when this idea is going to become the next internet, or it may be an idea that sits in a closet for a while, but that's okay, because it another idea builds upon that. And so Bill and Michael had written a book and I came into the mix and with some different ideas about, you know, how do you really take these ideas and how do you support them? The administrative structures that should be set up to support those faculty. And so this this book was born, the Academic Freedom Book, and it was published. It was quite fun to write it. It was quite challenging to write it, to figure out the right audiences that we were trying to get the message across. So that was out there. Fast forward, I, got, I eventually did agree to come to Case Western and work in the School of Engineering. I was concerned when I first came because I was afraid working just with engineers, and I do say that with a, a bit of a chuckle, would be boring for me because um, as someone from a, a liberal arts background, you know, I loved talking to the historian one day and talking to the engineer the next day, so I was a little concerned about that. But um, part of my charge when I came into engineering, not only to break down some of the disciplinary boundaries that existed within the school of engineering, but to really also break down the boundaries that existed across Case Western Reserve so that maybe we do have engineer working with a historian in, in these bigger projects to really make a difference to understand the full system of the knowledge that's being developed. And so I've been at Case Western since 2009. I have thoroughly enjoyed my work here. I think that this concept of bringing ideas together and different minds together and figuring out what the right system that's in place to support this is a critical, important thing for universities. I should say, too, when I came to Case, you know, I do not have a Ph.D., and it's very odd to be working in a university without a Ph.D., and so I was encouraged to at least go get my master's, that they use those terms, and so I did join a master's program here at Case Western in the School of Management, and it was around organizational behavior and development, which goes hand-in-hand, hand, frankly, with what I'm doing here in terms of culture change, getting teams to work together differently, having teams understand one another, so it was a perfect piece of education that was more formal because I would say my education has not ended from the time I stepped on that college campus when I was an undergraduate 
to now, my, it's never ended because I've been in a very rich environment of learning. But from a formal perspective, I took this master's program and it was quite exciting and to the point where um, I'm going to probably continue on with the PhD in that field because there's a lot of interesting topics that are emerging around the support of ideas and diversity of ideas within an institution and what are the right organizational structures, what are the right organization behaviors that you want to support within this kind of changing world of higher education because it is changing quite a bit. So that's a very, very long-winded story of my journey, Steve. I hope it's not too long-winded, but I would be happy to answer the next question about it. So we talked a little bit about your college experience. If you think back a little further than that, what was your experience with education earlier than that in high school and maybe even all the way back to grade school? So I was an A-plus student from grade school into high school. I liked learning, but it wasn't a cool thing to be smart. So I remember being very guarded about knowing stuff and answering questions too much. You know, I remember being proud of knowing things, but I also remember being a little embarrassed by by knowing things. And so, you know, I grew up in a pretty small town in a very small school where athletics was the driving force in many ways. And it just wasn't kind of being a stellar student was not necessarily what was expected. However, I did have those teachers who were able to kind of push against the culture and kind of protect some of those of us who really liked being smart and thought it was great being smart and would push you in a different direction. And so while my parents are always saying, you need to go to college, I wanted to go to college. I couldn't wait to go to college to be around other thinkers and other learners where it was great to read books together and to talk about books. I think I've always was a little inquisitive, uh, but I always had to be a little guarded when I was in that kind of grade school and high school. And college opened up those doors for me to kind of really be who I wanted to be and to really learn new ideas. So you had some teachers along the way who encouraged you, even in an environment that wasn't particularly conducive. Absolutely. So I had these great teachers who, I can remember one in particular, it was my English teacher, who uh, also was a theater, our theater director. And my senior year, I started to get a little, oh, I don't need to learn all this stuff anymore. I love it, but, you know, I know it all. And so he challenged me. He gave me a couple readings where really challenged what I was trying to do. And he gave me a bad grade on one of my tests around this book because he gave me some separate things. And I didn't like it. (laughs) I didn't like it at all. And he's just like, Lisa, he goes, don't get too big for your britches. He's like, you're smart and you kind of know you're smart, but there's a lot to be learning. And it wasn't, it was a B. I mean, it wasn't that bad a grade. I actually have a better story when I went to college and got a really bad grade. But many of us have had teachers who have seen the potential who was able to kind of, you know, poke at that potential when it was needed. And man, does it make a difference for, you know, for students. He was one in particular, Mr. McLaughlin. I mean, he's he's a name I won't forget because he did try to push me a little bit. And then there was another name. I, I had a math teacher. You know, I did really well in math. And that was particularly a class I was embarrassed by that. But he would always kind of keep throwing little things over my way. You know, take, do these extra problems. Do these extra, you know, this little extra bit of work. And kind of give me, you know, add a girl. That's, that's good. Keep it up. So that encouragement was really important. And those two teachers encouraged me in two different ways. But I remember them. You know, they kind of kept me going. So that actually sounds a little bit familiar. I went all the way through high school and even college with uh, with really great grades. And it wasn't until I came to Case Western, actually, <laughs> and I had a particular physics teacher. That he really challenged us. And I remember sitting in his office, you know, after the first test, 
wondering if I should continue going to graduate school. And he told me the most awesome thing I've ever heard from a professor. He said, you know, Steve, he said, uh, I tend to forget what happens at the beginning of the semester if students improve significantly as they continue on. And I mean, I've never worked that hard in any class before or since. And I got an A in that class, but I had to really work for it. I love it. You remember that, don't you? I love that. It means something. It does. And we don't think often about those people who you know, encourage us along the way educationally. But when we stop to think about them, we realize that there really is, you know, this really deep channel in our brain because of something that someone did uh, somewhere along the way. So that's a, that's a great story. Let's turn a little bit more toward uh, what you're doing now. Uh, we got connected because a mutual friend of ours suggested that I speak to you a little bit about the Innovation Summit that you guys have been working on. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. What is the Innovation Summit there at Case Western? Sure. This is um, the first annual summit, the first ever summit, that's trying to highlight innovations and ideas that um, are coming out of, not only coming out of Case across the institution, but it's really also about bringing thought leaders from across the country together to talk about innovation. It's very much, that term is a, is a bit of a buzzword these days. Everyone's talking about it. So uh, we decided that it might make sense to pull together some folks to talk about what innovation means in terms of comparing and contrasting ideas. So what does innovation mean to different geographic regions across the country? You know, if you're in Silicon Valley, there's a, a flavor of innovation. Midwest may have a flavor of innovation, but what does it look like? Different sectors, um, you know, what is it, what is it being innovative mean within, you know, the IT sector versus being innovative in the healthcare sector? Or what does it mean when you're being innovative in your neighborhoods and in your social groups? And so we're bringing together 71 different speakers, both, you know, folks that are local to Cleveland, but the vast majority from outside of the region. They're descending onto campus October 26, 27, and 28. We're going to investigate different models of innovation from the sectors to the different geographies. And we're going to be looking at what are the similarities across these different levels and what are the differences and what might we deduce from some of that. I will say that kind of the genesis of this idea to have this summit and to do this investigation of innovation really came from the fact that um, we're getting ready to open a new effort here on campus, not a new effort, but a new building on campus that's called ThinkBox in the Richie Mixon building. Probably about, oh gosh, about five, six, seven, eight years ago, and a group of faculty had ideas to, you know, how can we put together, create an environment, both physical and cultural, where disciplines meet and work together on new ideas, where people from the community meet with our faculty and with our students to talk about new ideas. And in 2012, we opened up an interim space that we call ThinkBox, where people can come in and you know, go into that space and prototype. And it's really this maker movement that people have been hearing about where you can use these digital manufacturing tools to bring your ideas to life. Um, But it's more than that. It's also about, you know, how do you ideate? Um, How do you bring different thought people together to come up with a solution to a problem? Um, And then in some cases, some people may want to take that solution to a problem into the marketplace. So what's the right pathway to take your ideas into the marketplace? And what's the right networks that you need to tap into? And what support do you need? And so, as ThinkBox um, has grown, um, it's been a huge fundraising effort here at the university under the direction of President Snyder. And um, we're moving into a 50,000 square foot building. 
And the first phase of that building uh, will be opening um, on October 1st, and the summit is at the end of October. And so we thought, let's have the summit where we're talking about innovation and looking at different models. Let's have it coincide when, when we open up this new building where we're moving ThinkBox. And where ThinkBox embodies innovation is really what it's about. And innovation in our world is when you provide these incredible solutions, diverse solutions to problems. And the solutions may be solutions that cost nothing. Uh, they're, they're mental solutions. Or they could be solutions that become a product someday. And so that's everyone's descending into Cleveland this last week of October. Uh, we in, expect to have a, a very engaging set of discussions as well as a big party over at ThinkBox celebrating all things innovation. So I was hoping you would bring ThinkBox up because I've seen quite a few things about it, and I I'm actually uh, a little bit jealous because I think I would have greatly enjoyed that. So tell me a little bit about the uh, the students and the faculty who show up at ThinkBox and how you guys have structured that environment. Sure. So I will say it's really student driven in many ways. I mean, faculty use it as well, but I, so it's more students that are using it at this stage. And how we've opened or how we've developed it is that it's open. I mean, the word openness means very much, it very much is at the base of the philosophy of ThinkBox. So any student from any department in any school and college can walk in those doors and start ideating, creating, using the, using the machines, using the equipment any time they want when it's open. I think right now we're open, we were open 60 hours a week in the old space, so it'll be open more hours when we move to a bigger space. But it, there's, it's not assigned to a class. I mean, classes can use the facility to do things like senior projects or you know entrepreneurial classes if they want to do things over there. But it's not tied directly to one department. It's not tied. While engineering is hosting it just because you have to have somebody own it at this institution to kind of get things moving, it is cross-university. And so you'll see students in there from all kinds of different disciplines, but you'll also see people in the space from the community. We have a lot of people from the Cleveland Institute of Art, a lot of students there that come in wanting to make things. And it's really fun to see um, at least in you know some of my experiences, the engineers working next to the artists to develop these really cool projects. You know, the the engineers find the functionality of a project. The art students are saying, "Yeah, but no one's going to use it looking like that." Let's think about how you would design it. And so you just you see a, it's a place where where structures there for safety, right? There is machinery, but there's also spaces where there are no machines, where there's like you know popsicle sticks and and cotton balls and whiteboards, and people can just ideate and crash up into one another and think about new ideas. So openness is the best word that we can use to describe what ThinkBox is about because, you know, on many campuses across the country, these type of spaces, although they are starting to change because there is a movement afoot, um, many of these types of spaces are limited to certain disciplines, certain departments, certain types of students. Ours opens is open to all students. And in addition, something that's very unique to ThinkBox here at Case is that it's open to the community. And when I say community, we mean the external community to Case Western's to the campus. So the garage tinkerer, um, the artist, the philosopher, anyone who would want to come in and use the space, it is open for them to use it. Uh, we haven't widely publicized that because we were in a smaller footprint. But now that we move to the bigger building, it'll be easier for the community members to use this. Because, you know, it's kind of cool when you have, say, an experienced welder, perhaps, who wants to come in and work next to uh, one of our student artists to come up with some different ideas. And they and the learning that happens back and forth across that those boundaries is really quite, quite interesting. So, Openness is the best way for us to kind of get talk about what ThinkBox is truly about. And that's a cult, not only a physical thing, but we're really working on that as a cultural motif as well. 
I think it's amazing that uh, students from the Cleveland Institute of Art have actually been coming over. Mm -hmm. Was there any significant bridge between the Institute and Case Western prior to this? So we have had relationships with them on individual class bases. Like, for example, there's our, our gaming um, faculty members have had a number of classes with um, the students at the Institute of Art. And I believe that there's folks in our Weatherhead School of Business, they have some relationships with the Institute of Art on, in some of the design programs. So there's been a bunch of one-off relationships. And so what's happened with this think box, and again, it's really been student-driven. You know, it's been the students from across the different areas wanting to work together. And one way we did try to help institutionalize a little bit is that the way we operate ThinkBox is that we use students as student, we call them TAs, teaching assistants, but they're really not teaching assistants in the official word. They're there to help and support anybody who comes in. We purposely reached out to the Institute of Art to see if any of their students wanted to take on those teaching assistant roles in terms of you know, working within ThinkBox, and many of them have. So that's helped us really kind of formalize some of those relationships between at the student level um, by giving them opportunities to come and work in ThinkBox and bring other people along. Um, so it's really extracurricular at the moment, and, you know, there are those courses that are happening, you know, on the one-offs with each in, with individual faculty, but this is one of the more formal kind of engagements that where we've tried to set up structures between the two institutions. And even when we opened ThinkBox over in the Richie Mixon building, you know, we've had a whole series of discussions of, you know, let's give those IDs, make sure we have the right IDs for the students to be able to get into ThinkBox from the Institute of Art and actually the Institute of Music so they can go over and use that, use the facility with ease without having to, you know, drive a car over and park and go in, in, in back doors and things of that nature. So um, we're trying to make it as easy as possible for our area institutions to get involved in ThinkBox. I love it. So you mentioned that ThinkBox is arranged around the word open or openness. Mm -hmm. And that uh, reminded me that you have a book that probably discusses that a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the, uh, the Academic Freedom book was about that you guys wrote, The End of Academic? Yeah, sure. So there's been this concern about, you know, the way ideas proliferate and the way ideas are supported. And there's some enemies um, that we think are kind of against what's happening in, at universities in terms of supporting this openness and, and this, this true exchange of ideas. And, you know, the enemies, um, authority, we'll just stick with that word, <laughs> government bureaucracy, some corporatism, of supernaturalism, and of course the last one is illiberalism is the fifth one. And there are these ways of thinking that are kind of holding back ideas, right, in terms of, uh, you know, and I'll pick on corporatism because that's the easiest one for me to pick on at the moment, is that, you know, so what happens when a corporate entity supports a research project, right? And what happens to the way that relationship ends up managing the early stages of research. So while there's a role for corporate engagement, of course, in the, in the, at the research university, working with, with faculty on translating ideas, there's also a slippery slope that happens in terms of engagement of corporate interests when you start working on free ideas and letting ideas go where they need to go, right, as opposed to where ideas go based on the funding trends or, or the funding and what you can say and what you can't say. And what's that right balance, right, between corporate involvement 
and no corporate involvement. So there's a little bit of concern that we have been seeing. And, you know, my co-author, Michael Schwartz, and he's the one that came up with the, the actual, the, he named the five enemies. Um, he was a president also um, at a previous university. So he's seen this kind of over his 50 some years of university life, you know, he has seen this kind of clamping down on letting ideas battle one another, right, in a very open environment. My the other co-author, Bill Bowen, he's the one that brought this this concept together of the survival of the fit in terms of ideas, that the more ideas that you have in an environment that can battle one another and kind of, you know, figure out, you know, which one's the strongest one, the best ideas emerge from that. And so when these enemies start to come afoot, um, whether it's bureaucracy or whatever it might be, to kind of hold these ideas back or to say, you know, your idea is just not strong yet, you know, without any peer review or just because someone doesn't like it, right? That that hurts kind of where knowledge is created, where ideas can kind of bounce up against one another and the best ideas come out to play. Because the more ideas you have that can bounce up against one another, the better set of ideas are going to come out of that. So the openness is very important for us. And a lot of the public view tenure as a, as a dirty word in many ways. But you know, tenure and this sense of having academic freedom to explore any kind of idea that seems to be the right idea at the time. If we don't have people protected to go and just go after those ideas where they might take them, where it might be an idea that doesn't necessarily have a funding pathway, that maybe nobody, th everyone thinks it's a crazy idea, but that crazy idea may be the next solution to cancer, right? To, to solving the, the cancer problem. I mean, so you've got to have these environments set up where you allow the ideas to proliferate and you allow those ideas that may not make any sense, may not have any, you know, who knows what the market potential is, right? Um, you've got to let them happen. And it's okay if some of them are bad because those bad ideas may have opened the doors to other ones. So I will say that's part of my underlying philosophy too in terms of just working at a university. And, you know, I get a bit nervous, you know, these days. There's such a magnifying glass in terms of what's the value of an education and what's the value of colleges. And boy, it really costs a lot. And oh boy, no one's getting enough. You know, what's the job equation? And, you know, it's a very, it's a very gentle conversation you have to have because yes, of course, on one side, you, you don't want students incurring incredible amounts of debt and not having jobs and being prepared for jobs after, you know, incurring that debt. But on the other side of the equation, you know, higher education is more than just about a job, right? It's about a way of thinking. It's about a way of living your life. It's about a way of contributing to society's problems. And so you've got to make sure there's this balance that happens between letting these kind of ideas proliferate and letting new knowledge be created and, and letting students be part of that environment of new ideas while also, you know, making sure they've got the right experiences so that they can pay their rent when they graduate. So there's a, a very gentle dance that I think is going on right now that is a bit concerning to me. And, you know, with the book, we have to be careful of what we call these enemies and how far they swing to one, you know, one way or the other in terms of the impact on idea development and their impact on idea growth and knowledge creation and really helping be institutions that can support kind of the great minds of the next generation. I was at a research lab in the Navy uh, here in California uh, doing research and on multiple occasions had to go looking for qualified uh, researchers to work with us. The pool was so small uh, for qualified you know, citizens of the U.S. that 
we had a very hard time finding appropriate researchers to come work with us. Yeah. I ended up there actually in somewhat of an accident, and I couldn't bring myself to go work in a metropolitan area. I didn't want to live in downtown L.A. And so I ended up out in the desert, you know, in this rural place, almost by accident because it was a place where I could do high-tech research and live far from a metropolitan area. I loved it, but not everyone was excited by that or attracted by that. And so it was just very difficult to to find those people. And as I got looking further into it, I started to notice disturbing patterns in K-12 and the pipeline heading to the university and students get to the end of high school and they jump into college. And when science gets hard or math gets hard or engineering gets hard, well, let's just go take a business major or an English major or a you know, mm-hmm. liberal studies major, anything other than what's hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, there's no shortcut in, in some of these yep. disciplines. You have to go through the hard stuff before you hit the fun stuff. And there is plenty of fun stuff there. I mean, there is so yeah. much fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. I had a friend that used to say that physicists have all the fun toys. You know, I mean, we just, we had the coolest stuff in the lab. We just had a, a lot of fun. But yeah. many students would never find their way there simply because they somewhere earlier on they had taken mm-hmm. a fork in the road and there was mm-hmm. no easy way to get from where they were to where that is. So while the summit isn't speaking to that specifically, I mean Thinkbox is thinking about that. Yeah. And you know, and we've been part of the national conversation um, where they see making, manufacturing, K twelve, you know, all that STEM education, you know, this is all kind of blending together, right? In yeah. terms of in these maker spaces do provide an opportunity to kind of hook people in a different way and have them think about math and science a different way. But you're actually bringing up a, a different type of a point. I don't care, even if you come into the maker space and it's kind of fun, you're going to eventually have to go hard. It's going to have to get hard. You're going to have to struggle with those equations. You're going to have to struggle with some things that are difficult. And so we've actually been having a conversation about this concept of grit and the concept of perseverance. I'm teaching a Sages class this semester. These are A-plus kids in this class, right? And we're talking about how, you know, we're going to get comfortable with failure, and we're going to get comfortable <laughs> with pushing hard, you know, and not knowing something, because it's okay not to know something, and it's okay to fail, you know? And so, of course, one little, you know, one kid raised he's like, well, does that mean I can get an F in my other classes? We're like, no, that's not what we mean. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about what do you do when that A is not easy for you? Right. What does grit mean to you and how do you push through? How do you get the help that you need? So you stick it out in engineering. You know, we in this class, we have 17 students and like 11 of them are intended engineering majors. The rest are are health oriented majors. But, you know, there's a few of these folks are like, yeah, I'm not sure if engineering is going to be the right thing for me. And push hard. You need to push hard and do this stuff. So you've brought up an issue that I, I think that as a country, we're going to have to figure out what to do. I mean, there's one side of it where we've got to improve the way we teach early math and science. I mean, we've got to do things where people aren't like completely turned off the minute they walk into a science class. I mean, there are some things that have to be done. There's no doubt on that. But we also have to be careful that not to water it down either. I mean, because there's been a big discussion on these maker conversations. It's like, yeah, okay, great. You can come in here and learn your computer stuff and you can learn how to do the 3D printing, but you understand 
how that 3D printer works? Do you understand the, you know, what's going on in terms of those materials and why those materials are the right ones and the chemistry behind those materials that are selected that goes into the 3D printer? Yeah, it's really cool that fun things are being made, but let's look at what's beyond it. So there's going to be a point where even if we can use these maker spaces to kind of bring different people in to think about math and science and engineering a little bit differently, we are going to have to at some point flip the switch to say, this is going to be hard but there's going to be a benefit for you to do the hard work. So it's going to be interesting to see where this movement goes. Excellent. Well, uh, I would love to just jump straight into that, but I don't want to keep you too much longer. So let's jump into the last two questions. Sure. In the digital age, which we've already referenced a couple of times and you've talked about quite a bit, what does it mean to be educated with quotation marks around the word educated? What does that mean in this environment? The quick answer is information literacy in my mind. There's so much information out here in this digital environment. You can grasp anything so quickly from Google, right? <laughs> you know, you, you search for things and there it is. Or there are texts that you can pull up that you've never been able to pull up from a distance. So there's almost an overload of information in this digital age. That's a good thing, but the thing that I think separates those who are educated, or, or you know, to call you educated, is someone, and it may happen through a formal mechanism, and maybe it's, it could be informal as well, is that, you know, how do you discern what that information that content is and what what's the strong content and what's the weak content. And so in my mind, the digital nature of education is about information and how much information is out there and how do you really evaluate that information. So what does it mean to be educated? Being educated means understanding the boundaries and the limitations of this digital set of information that's out here at our fingertips. I love it. So the last question with your perspective on starting out in a small town and then working your way all the way to the office of uh, the dean, the associate dean, what is the purpose of an education, looking back across those, all those experiences? It's about living a, a strong life. It's about living a life of curiosity. It's about opening up new worlds that you might not know that are the, that's there. It's about understanding the new worlds that you might not understand. It's about this journey of being able to be open to new experiences and knowing how to engage in those new experiences, knowing how to, to ask the right questions, knowing to always how to grow as an individual. You know, jobs are important, and I don't want to make sure, you know, education is, the purpose of education, yes, you need to, you need to feed yourself, right? We all know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need to manage that. But it's a about really figuring out, you know, how do you think differently? How do you engage your society differently? How do you contribute differently? And how do you understand what those contributions are? You know, this is a whole world where your your curiosity is limitless. And if you're giving tools, being given tools through your education to manage what all this limitless possibilities are, that's a pretty exciting life that you're going to lead, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're, you know, you're, you're meeting your basic needs, right? It gives you a sense of purpose in the world and it gives you a sense of, of constant growth and activity in a mind that you can never not have that, no matter what, you know, what the boundaries are. You always can have that mind and your excitement and knowing how to use it. I think is, is one of the big purposes that education gives us is how to use that mind in a creative, exciting, uh, curious way. Excellent. Well, I think we're going to wrap it right there. So for our audience, what's the best way to get in touch with you if they have questions or are interested in more about what happens at Case Western? They can email me at lisa.camp at case.edu. That's the best way. Excellent. Well, thank you, Lisa. 
Thank you, Steve. I look forward to many, many more cool things that uh, you get involved with there at Case Western. Well, when you come back, I want to take you through ThinkBox. You're always welcome. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm-hmm.